I'm not sure if any of you have heard of uh, the name of this man. He goes, he's, he's been called the mountain man. His uh, name is Dashrath Manji. Amazingly, someone came up to me at the break and said, I just had this feeling that you were going to talk about Dashrath Manji, the mountain man today. And I, and I thought, that's the most random thing ever. Like, how would anyone know I was going to be talking? I didn't even uh, have a, a sense of who this person was uh, until this past week. But he's a laborer in Bihar, India. His wife died tragically after an accident, and it wasn't just the injuries she suffered in the accident. It was the fact that she couldn't make it to the hospital in time to be treated uh, for uh, those injuries. Uh, The problem wasn't so much that the hospital was too far away. It was just that there was a mountain uh, in the way. Uh, And uh, after the passing of his wife, Dashrath Manji decided he was going to do something about it. He began to dig. He just had a hammer and a chisel, and uh, he began digging a path through the mountain, and the villagers in his town just thought he is totally nuts, completely crazy what he was taking on. He continued to dig anyway. For the next 22 years, he single-handedly carved a path through a mountain. It was 110 meters long, 9 meters wide, and over 7 meters deep. By doing so, he would cut some 40 kilometers off the distance from his village to uh, the town where the hospital was, and in so doing, probably has uh, and will continue to be responsible for the saving of many lives and improving the convenience uh, and viability of this uh, village. When he died, he was given a state funeral. And in one sense, the mountain man is an inspiring story for us. The reality is that many of us, though, don't do what the mountain man did, right? We have the obstacle, we have the mountain in our path, and we look at it and say, all I've got is a hammer and chisel, and that's certainly not going to do the trick. So we back away. We give up. We look for uh, another way around. And so this morning, really, the, pa- the question that the passage is forcing us, I believe, to ask is, first of all, what are some of those mountains in your life? What are some of the battles that you're facing? Some of the battles that that you just haven't brought on by your own, uh, as we do sometimes, by your own pride and desire to to, uh, take on a battle, but some of the battles that you feel are God's battles. Maybe you're facing a battle for your marriage, and it would just be easier to pack it in. Maybe it's a battle for your children's faith and it feels hopeless. Maybe you're facing a battle for your purity, for your holiness, a battle for your, your health, your finances. Whatever it is, there's a sense that God has given you a mountain and it's felt a little too big, your resources have felt a little too small, and it would be so much easier to just give up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the only fight which is lost is that which we give up. This morning, I want to encourage you not to give up on those spiritual battles that you may be facing. 
and to face your battles with the confidence that there is a victory that Christ alone can bring. So uh, to do that, I want you to turn with me, if you would. If you have your Bibles, turn to, to uh, Judges chapter 7. We have been, uh, for a number of weeks through, through the summer, looking at the life of Gideon. And uh, we find in today's passage courage, I believe, to see God's victory. Uh, we're going to look at the, the account in three sections, and the first is in verses 9 to 11, and it challenges us to believe in the victory that God promises. Uh, follow along as I read from Judges chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. Now Gideon, as we have been seeing, as we have looked at his life, couldn't be more different than Dashrath Manji. Uh, he, had, he had been the guy who again and again in his life calling out to God for help. We, we saw him in the beginning of chapter 6, and he's crying out to God for deliverance. The Midianites had just been attacking the Israelites year by year. For seven years, every time harvest came, they would swoop in, take the harvest, clean them of everything that they had, and then they would leave. They were an oppressed people. And so Gideon asked, for, asked God for help. He, like the other Israelites, were crying out, please, God, help us, help us. And God finally came to him and said, I will help you. I will deliver you from this oppression. I just need you to trust me. And in fact, as an example of that, I want you to be the means through which I bring deliverance for the people of Israel. Gideon, like many of us, in hearing God's great promise, just struggled to believe that it could be true and struggled to believe that he could play a role in what uh, God was asking him. And so we've seen as we've gone through his life, at each stage, God meets him, God reassures him, God deals patiently with his doubts, his struggles, all of the things that would get in the way of him responding to God and uh, seeking to be faithful to his call. In the previous messages, we've seen miracles and proofs and God's doing, doing things with, with dew and, and with fleeces and setting uh, uh, a sacrifice on fire and whatever it'll take to get Gideon to the place where he will trust him. Now, God tells him to get up and get in the battle. And in verse 9, he assures him of victory. You'd think that'd be enough. You'd think, okay, now Gideon, surely he's been convinced by God, persuaded. Surely he will follow God into victory. God knows better. So in verse 10, he says, but if you were afraid, and he lays out his plan, and you know, and we all know, Gideon, of course, is still afraid. And Gideon, if, if there's a plan B, he's going to take that route, whatever it is. And so he, he takes the... Uh, the, the afraid um, route at that point, and he signs up for uh, this, this extra 
extra little reassurance package that God provides. And so before we go on, I just want you to, I just want you to think, are there fears that are keeping you from the spiritual battles God is calling you to? Are there still things that are holding you back from responding to God out of, out of a worry that you don't have enough, out of a, a sense that it is too big, too overwhelming, too much? Are there fears keeping you on the sidelines? God has a couple of very practical things for people like us that are feeling those kinds of fears. He addresses them, uh, first of all, in verse 10. He's going to call Gideon to sneak down to the Midianite camp. To go down in the middle of the night, he's going to hear something. But interestingly, God knows that if he asks Gideon to go and do this, Gideon's going to be way too scared. He's, he's, uh, he's probably afraid of the dark. He's probably afraid of the, the Midianite camp. He knows if he asks him to do this alone that he's going to be uh, cowering at even that. And this is God's plan to reassure him. So he says, interestingly, bring along a friend. Bring along Pura, your servant. He pairs him up with someone who can share his burdens, someone with whom he can unload his fears. Jesus did the same thing when he sent the disciples out into ministry. He knew that the disciples weren't all that far ahead of Gideon in terms of their, their courage and their faithfulness and their, their great faith to trust God for the things that he had them to do. And so he sent them out in pairs, two by two, to encourage them, to provide support, help. And it's a picture for me of the way that God intends for us to live the Christian life. We are not created to walk the, the Christian life alone. That God, not only when he calls a child of God, he calls and puts them into the family of God. And so often we want to go it alone anyway. We want to kind of keep people at arm's length and just kind of keep it between me and God. And so often that, that that's, that's the kind of posture by which people will fall. And in this case, shrink back in fear and give up. That's why we keep encouraging people to get into our life groups. Get into a, uh, into a group of people that you can get to know, that they can share your burdens, that you can share their burdens. We can live life together, seek God in his word together, and pray for one another to strengthen, strengthen our hands. So God gives Gideon a spiritual partner. Then he gives him a message. The late night trip down to the Midianite camp is to hear a message that God has given to the Midianites, but then through them to Gideon himself. In verse 11, it says, you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened. This isn't just some, some unusual thing. It's not an anomaly what he's doing here with Gideon. Hearing and uh, and, and being strengthened by God's word is his normal means of preparing people for the challenges that come in life. The problem is, although this is God's normal means of preparing us for life's battles, too often we are those who don't hear God's word. And when we hear God's word, we don't combine it with faith so that there is a trusting in not only what God has said, 
we lay hold of it ourselves. When we don't do that, we walk into the battle feeling unprepared, under-equipped, not knowing what, what God's Word says and not trusting that, that that Word of God is our Word, something that we have laid hold of and, and own for ourselves. A daily intake of God's Word strengthens us. It gives us courage. His promises reassure us. His majesty, as we see him revealed in Scripture, it, it fills us with a confidence in who he is when we feel the sense of uncertainty and inadequacy in who we are. Interestingly, the Israelites were, were never even ever supposed to go out into battle unless they had heard from God. It, it, the the, the, the Principle gets laid out in Deuteronomy 20, verses 2 to 4. It says this, When you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Imagine the impact that would have on a, a, an, an army ready to go and face a battle to, to hear a word from God that our God would have us not fear. Our God would have us not shrink back in, in worry and anxiety. Our God would have us w- walk into this challenge with the assurance that he is with us, that he is our strength, that he is the one that prepares us for battle. He is the one that pro- provides the victory. That's the assurance that God wants his people to have. That's the confidence he wants to give us. But he gives that to us through his word. I can't run out ahead and and deliver you a little sermon pep talk before every challenge that, that you have facing you in the course of your week. But the intention is that you would be coming before God each morning, calling upon him in his word, asking for the him to reveal himself, him to reassure you, give you the strength, and that having heard, you combine that message with your faith. You respond to it with trust and a belief in what God is going to do. When we do that, we believe in the victory God promises. We can face our battles with confidence when we believe in his victory, but we need to believe that that victory belongs to Christ alone. Spiritual victories aren't shared with God. Like, I'm going to kind of get up halfway across the finish line, God, and if you could just do the last 100 meters, then we'll kind of have a partnership. doesn't work that way. Spiritual victories aren't anything we can take credit for. We need to believe the victory belongs to Christ alone. Watch how that comes out in verses 12 to 18 as I, as I read that passage. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. 
God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And as he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. Now, verse 12 starts by reminding us of why Gideon may be quite afraid at this point. There's this massive coalition. You've got Midianites, Malachites, or other peoples joined in, and it says that they are like uh, laying along the valley like locusts in abundance. Gideon's got 300 poorly equipped men, and they are totally outnumbered, some 450 to 1 we've seen. And it then goes on to describe that they had camels. There were so many camels, they couldn't even count them. They were like the sand on the seashore. And for Gideon, this, he's looking at these camels and thinking, I don't even have the food. I couldn't even come up with the food to feed these animals, let alone compete with them in battle. Totally under-resourced, totally outnumbered. And the point of this, and so many battles that God leads us into, is that the human odds are supposed to feel overwhelming. We are supposed to feel like we're completely in over our heads. So that if God doesn't intervene, we know this is completely hopeless. He does that not because God wants to terrify us or because he's forgotten about us or because he wasn't watching. He wants us to feel like we're in over our head because he wants us to show us the kinds of things that only he can do. He wants us to see his victory. Paul said as much in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He had been talking with the Corinthians about all of the, the, the challenges and difficulties he faced in ministry. And it was like unbelievable. He, he faced riots and, and stonings. He, he was beaten and faced mobs. And some people would have come to the conclusion, oh, I guess God's forgotten about you. Or I guess this is just too big of a mountain. We should just pack it in because it looks like all you've got is a hammer and chisel and surely you're not going to make it through the other side. But Paul sees the exact same circumstances from a totally different perspective. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He recognized that he had something precious but it wasn't him. It wasn't his experiences, his knowledge. It wasn't his education, his learning. It wasn't his physical prowess, his intellect, anything that he could bring to it. In fact, he said, what I've got is getting beaten up all the time to show that I don't really have anything to offer here, but I've got something inside me by the power of the Holy Spirit that allows him to, to get victory and when I am weak, people see God's strength. They see God on display. And that's what he is using to draw people to himself. 
God wants to show his power, his preciousness to the people around you. And often he will use the difficulties and the obstacles in our lives to show his power in our weakness. But we need to trust him in that. We need to believe him with those circumstances we find ourselves in. Now Gideon and Pura overhear two Midianites talking about a dream. In the dream is a cake of barley and it's tumbling into the camp and flattening a Midianite tent. And if you and I heard that dream, we'd probably say like, man, what did you eat for dinner last night? You just, something's disagreeing with you. You've got like heartburn or something. That, I don't know, that, that doesn't mean anything to me. But if you were in that Midianite camp, you know that the Israelites were farmers. They were the farmers, and barley was the bread of poor and often oppressed people. And so it was a real natural uh, picture of the Israelite army. The Midianites, by contrast, were nomads. They traveled around in tents. And so when they're on the verge of a battle with Israel and they see a cake of barley bread come rolling into a camp and flatten a tent, that, that seems to them a pretty clear picture that Israel is going to win this victory. And it strikes fear into the Midianites. But verse 15 says, Gideon worshipped. He didn't say, wow, glad we got out of that one, or boy, we're really going to, we, we've got more going for us than I thought we did. He recognizes, no, this is God's doing, God's victory, God's power, and he does what so often God wants us to do when we find ourselves in these situations. He wants to draw us into worship. Even his battle plan sounds more like a worship concert than it does a war strategy, right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't go, well, we've only got 300. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand you two swords each, and we'll, we'll attack them with double-fisted. He, he doesn't say that. Instead of handing out swords at all, he gives them a trumpet for them to, to bring praise to the Lord through, through, through uh, their instruments. And then he... He gives them, he gives them the, uh, the torches. But instead of mounting this surprise attack, he said, let's just sneak in and kind of come up behind them and, and attack them like that. Instead of a, this quiet surprise attack, they get up and the 300 of them shout. And they shout, for the Lord! And you're thinking, that's the dumbest thing to do ever. Like everyone's going to wake up and start attacking you. You get in there quietly and attack them. And he says, no, no, this is going to, we are going to praise God. We're going to worship him. And it is then that God works. And again, that's the point of so many of the struggles that we find ourselves in. God wants to lead us into worship. He wants us to see his victory, what he can do, his power and his strength in our lives and then stand back in awe when we recognize what he's done. You would think at this point, after everything God has done, after what a pathetic leader, really, Gideon has been, that Gideon would see that God alone could save him. Yet even still, Gideon's pride can't help but steal a little bit of glory in this moment. So in verse 18, when he tells the army to surround the Midianites and shout, he tells them to cheer for the Lord and for Gideon. 
And he's kind of really excited about the second part of that phrase, I think. He's kind of getting into that. And you and I are hearing that, and we're thinking, like, for who? For Gideon, really? Like, we've seen, like, he had just failed at every test that God has put in his path. And still, somehow he wants to take credit for this victory. And so often we'll do that, right? We'll find ourselves in situations and we'll come to the Lord and we'll say, God, I'm hopeless. I can't do this. If you don't intervene, there's no way we're getting out of this. And God graciously answers our prayers and we think, well, I guess it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. I, I guess I was kind of smarter than I thought. I, I, I get, I, I'm, maybe I've, I can handle these kinds of things after all, God. And we steal that credit that God wants for himself. God is trying to lead us into worship. He's trying to lead us to see how great he is. And we cling to that glory for ourselves. He, de he deserves the victory and it's his alone. Psalm 20 verses 7 to 8 says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. God wants us to trust him. Do you do that? Are you trusting him with the battles in your life right now? Don't trust your efforts or your reasoning or your abilities, your experience, your network, whatever it is you are resting in. Do not trust in that. Put your trust in Christ alone. Believe that he holds the keys to any victory. And when he gives you a taste of that victory, give him the glory. Give him thanks. Announce what he has done, not what you kind of figured out and kind of had, had in your hand already. So God's given Gideon a lot of reassurance. He's prepared him for this victory. But God still has Gideon express his confidence and faith in action. This is important because sometimes people think as long as they've prayed, their job is done. They don't actually have to do anything. And God will show to Gideon that his faith needs to be accompanied by action. His faith needs legs. He needs to respond. God wants us to express our belief in action. Now, given how much fear Gideon has shown in resisting God so far, it's amazing that any of his men want to follow him. Like Gideon has said no to God, no to God, no to God. And you'd think when Gideon stands up and announces a plan, particularly when it's as ridiculous as carrying trumpets and torches into battle, you'd think they would say, like, forget it. We're not into that. But amazingly, they respond. Even though God has assured Gideon that he'll deliver the Midianites into his hands, the Israelites still have to do something. Faith needs to exp be expressed in action. They still have to face the enemy. And so what they do is they form kind of a, a three-part wall around the, around the Midianites. They're in camps of 100, and they bring the, their torches, but they've got jars over their torches. So they're just going to smolder. They're not getting a lot of oxygen at this point. When they break the, break the, the jars there'd be this sudden gust of, of oxygen over the flame and they would just burst into a blaze. Then they'd take their, their trumpets and as we see, they're going to all 
blow into them at once, and there would just be this deafening, uh, shrill sound. And, and it's about 10 o'clock at night, so everybody's asleep, and so they're hearing the sound and just be bolted into, uh, uh, out of their sleep and into a panic. Usually an army, you want to equip them with as many, many, many weapons as possible. So you would only give trumpets to a few of the people to give some basic signals. And you would have a, a limited number of torches that you would hand out because you want people ready for battle and having their weapons in their hands. So when the Midianites see not, not a few people with trumpets, when they see 300 people blowing on their trumpets and this wall of, of torches, they assume this represents a massive army that is uh, about to overwhelm them. And so they do go into a panic at that point. Uh, verse 22 explains, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. They start attacking themselves and they fall into full retreat. The Lord's victory has been secured. But to secure that victory, it would involve Gideon and his 300 expressing their faith in action and doing the simple thing that God had asked them to do, to go up to that camp and to worship him. And so this morning we're left with a question, do you have the courage to see God's victory? Do you trust him enough to get in the battle even when you feel overwhelmed, even though it feels like a mountain that you just don't know how you could possibly climb on your own. For a Christian, that doesn't involve fighting any Midianites anymore. The battle that God calls us to is often a battle with sin and temptation. And often we find ourselves saying, I- I'm just not good at this. Or, this is, that's not really how my personality, I can't really deal with that. And we give up in areas of unholiness in our, in our lives, in our characters, and God would call us to pick up uh, the weapons that he would give us to, uh, to deal with them. It also engage, involves engaging in the spiritual battle uh, of, of ministry with the confidence that when we serve on his behalf, even though we feel ourselves under-equipped, under-resourced, he is the one that will bring victory. It involves engaging in the battle for your marriage, for your children, for your integrity, for your purity, for your financial stewardship, for your faith. And as we do, we remember Bonhoeffer's words, the only fight which is lost is that which we give up. Don't give up this morning. Let's believe in God's victory and lay hold of the promises that he gives to us as we respond to him, as we, as we express our faith and confidence in him with simple obedience and, and, and action as God would direct. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I do pray for anyone here this morning who feels like giving up. Whatever it is, the mountain just feels too big. Father, help them to turn to you for the victory that only you can bring and rescue them, help them, pour out your mercy on them. Father, would you help all of us to confront the fears that keep us from serving you? Help us to trust you and trust other people who can strengthen and help us. And help us to stand back in awe and worship and give you the credit you deserve. For you alone are worthy.
We praise you in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.